Do you know the story of Scripture? Do you know the, the big picture story of how God has been at work as it's recorded in the Bible and continues as he continues that work even, even to today? So this morning, I, I mentioned earlier, but I want to tie Acts chapter 7 with the Apostle Paul. And as we began our study of 1 Corinthians, we were reminded that we were, we were first introduced to Paul as Saul, the great persecutor of the church. We saw, even as I read a few minutes ago, that following the stoning of Stephen, Saul gave approval to his execution. And then, immediately after that, we saw in chapter 8 that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. But in chapter 9, when the, when the ascended Jesus intervened and saved him, Jesus said this about the Apostle Paul. He said to Ananias, he said, he said that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then in last week in our study of 1 Corinthians, we saw that God has a foolish message to be distributed in a foolish manner from the mouths of foolish preachers, and yet it is the power of God to save foolish recipients. Do you remember that, that while, yes, Jesus directly intervened and saved Paul, as he does with each of us, by the way, he did so after Paul heard one of those foolish messages, one of those foolish preachers, a preacher, in fact, that was so foolish that he gave up his life for the gospel that he preached. Paul's immediate response to hearing Stephen's sermon was to approve of his execution. And then he went about persecuting anyone who received the message of the gospel. And so I thought it would be appropriate this morning and at this point in our study of 1 Corinthians to take a look at that sermon that in reality ended up being so influential in the life of Paul as he initially rejected the message that Stephen preached. And then he eventually went about to, to essentially preach the same message himself. So Acts chapter 7, I read this earlier, it's a long chapter. And so what we're going to do this morning is take some, some sections as we work through this. But before we get into this, I want to read uh, just a little bit more. In, starting in chapter 6, verse 8, through the first verse of chapter 7, so that we'll understand the, the context behind why, why Stephen preaches this message at all. And as I do, keep this in mind, as I said, this chapter is fairly complicated, especially at first glance, but what Stephen is doing in chapter 7 of Acts is recounting the history of God's work in the nation of Israel. That's what he is doing, recounting the history of God's work in the nation of Israel. So let me read, beginning in chapter 6, verse 8, just a few verses, down through the first verse of chapter 7. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
and some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the uh, Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and all, uh, uh, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not understand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up a false witness who said, witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Let's just stop and pray again. Father, help us to understand today. It is, uh, I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. Uh, give us ears to hear. Help us to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So consider this Stephen. He was a man described in chapter 6 as being full of faith and, and of the Holy Spirit. He was a man who, as an, an official representative of the church at Jerusalem, uh, some believe that he was maybe one of the first deacons, that group of men who were called to serve there in that church, whether they were deacons or not. He was an official representative of the church at, at Jerusalem, and he was tasked with providing meals to some of the Greek-speaking widows. Stephen was a man who, in sharing the gospel, found himself in dispute with the Jewish authorities. And he was now, as we read this, on trial before the highest court in Judaism, before the Sanhedrin. And as he preaches, he offers up for us today a, a defense that, that incorporates several events in God's redeeming plan for his people. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention at the outset a couple of points that we need to keep in mind as we work through this. The first is this. I believe Stephen's sermon is meant to be taken all together and not divided up into individual chunks. I think to do so would be to miss the forest for the trees. In other words, we're going to look at Acts chapter 7 for what it is. It is a sermon with one major point that Stephen is trying to get across to his listeners. I'll tell you what that point is in a minute. And then second, the other thing that we need to keep in mind here is that this is a very difficult chapter because Stephen seems to be using, uh, using a source for his information that seems it's slightly different than some of the Hebrew Old Testament passages that we would read um, in the cross-references. It's probable that he's using a, a document called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. But the other thing we have to remember is he's doing it from memory, on the spot. And so we're not going to dwell on the technical details or we're going to lose sight of his point. And so let me just say this, any any apparent discrepancies. If you go back and study and try and compare uh, Acts chapter 7 with various passages in the Old Testament that he refers to, we can explain these by the fact that, that Stephen is preaching Israel's history in order to make a specific point. And so at times he quotes directly, 
At times he puts events in his own words, and at times it seems like he relies on some traditional accounts that we actually don't have any written record of today, but that doesn't make them any less true, and he never contradicts other scriptures. That's important for us. So in this chapter, Stephen is answering the charges against him by showing that the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leadership, by the people of Israel, that rejection, it perfectly fits the pattern that they had of rejecting God and his messengers all throughout their history. They continue to reject God and the prophets, the messengers that God had sent. Throughout its long and turbulent history, the nation of Israel repeatedly rejected those whom God sent to deliver them, and in so doing, they have rejected God himself. It's very important that this is Stephen's point. So look at the charges against him. They're actually in in chapter 6, verse 11, and then in verses 13 and 14. These are the charges against him. Chapter 6, verse 11 says this, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And jump down to verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So these are the charges against Stephen. He's speaking against the temple, they're saying, the holy place. And he's also speaking against the law given to them by Moses and is going to change the law and the customs. These charges were punishable by death. So in verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest hears the charges and says, Are these things so? In other words, are these charges true? Have you been unfaithful to the basic tenets of the Jewish faith? Have you been encouraging others to leave Judaism as well? Here's why it's important to see the point that Stephen makes here in his response. He does not defend himself. Stephen does not defend himself. Instead, he lays out and defends the truth of Christianity. And he does so by framing his defense with God's glory. He starts with the, God, the glory of God or the God of glory and he finishes actually with a, with a vision of the, of the God of glory, of the glory of God and, and Jesus himself standing at the right hand of the Father. So, are these charges against you true? Have you been unfaithful to the law and to the temple? Are you encouraging others to do the same? Are these things so, the high priest said? And again, Stephen starts his defense of Christianity, not with himself, but actually with Father Abraham, as God called him out of his land and into the land that God would give him. We see this in verses 2 through 8. Let me read these again. Verse 2, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. 
Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So here we see Abraham. It's uh, God's dealing with Abraham. It's important, to, it's important that Stephen starts with Abraham because he will end up stressing the, the common lineage between Christians and Jews. We are related to Jewish people in the sense that we both trace our origin back to God's call of Abraham out of the land of his father and into a land that God would show him. In fact, the promise to Abraham is a promise worth reading. It's a promise worth remembering. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The God of glory, in his sovereignty, chose Abraham out of Ur, out of Mesopotamia, to be the father of a great nation. He called him out of his familiar homeland to live in the land that he would show him. The land, as Stephen reminds those in the Sanhedrin, the land in which you are now living, by the way. See, God keeps his promises. They are there because God said they would be there. They are there because God promised Abraham they would be here. God promised Abraham three things. He promised the land, that, that they would be a great nation, and that through them all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. But Stephen's primarily focused on the land here. Why? Why is Stephen focused on the land? Because the God of glory revealed himself to Abraham in a pagan land. The God of glory, seen in the tabernacle and the, and the temple, called Abraham from the known, the land of his fathers, to the unknown, the land that I will yet show you. He called Abraham to become sojourners and, and pilgrims, promising his descendants an inheritance, which the Sanhedrin, the Jews, the people to whom uh, Stephen is preaching, they now possess that promise. Yet Abraham never did, because as verse 6 says, they were strangers in a strange land, Egypt, and they were enslaved. They will need rescue. Verse 8 tells us that they will be rescued in order to worship. They will be redeemed in order to bow down their knees and worship God. And God covenanted with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with the 12 tribes in order to demonstrate that his faithfulness is more than we could ever ask or imagine. God is faithful. Stephen focused here on Abraham's faith. 
Abraham was obedient to God despite the odds being completely against him. He left his homeland to go to a land of complete unknown. He arrived in the promised land only to not receive the promise. All he received when he had no child was the promise that his offspring would inherit the land. Yet those same offspring would be enslaved. Still, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this first section of Stephen's sermon concludes by affirming the establishment of Israel and its worship on the foundation of God's call and his provision and promises. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, he says on this point, he says, Long before there was a holy place, there was a holy people to whom God had pledged himself. See, God's promises take priority here. Abraham doesn't have the land. He doesn't have the offspring. He doesn't have the tabernacle. He doesn't have the temple. Yet he has God's promise. He has God's covenant. God's covenant promise. At this point in the sermon, as Stephen is preaching these things, he actually has not said anything controversial. Not for the Sanhedrin. This, this high court, they would have generally agreed with those words. Stephen begins in a very positive note. He emphasizes that he, that he shares this foundation of faith with his accusers. Listen, we all believe this, he says. This religion that he is talking about is built on the foundation of God's calling and his promises. And the Jews think that he is singing their song. And he was. Until things start to go a little sideways for him. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. This is really God and Joseph at this point. He jumps ahead in the story. And in turning his attention to another major leader in Israel, in ancient Israel, namely this Joseph here, Stephen is now stressing the, the strained relationship between the people of Israel and the deliverers God provided for them. And the first hint of trouble is their jealousy there in verse 9. Look at this again. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. This jealousy. This, was, this has been a problem for the accusers of the church as well. Just flip back a couple of pages to chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 um, Verses 17 and 18. I want you to notice that one specific word in these two verses. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, 
And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Stephen didn't use the word jealous at random. He was beginning to show them his point that the same sin that entrapped the patriarchs of Joseph, Joseph's brothers, the same sin was entrapping the Jewish leadership in front of him. Jealousy. And you need to know that this is actually a strategy God uses in order to bring salvation to the Gentiles. This is, this is what Romans 10 and 11 is all about. In fact, chapter, Romans chapter 10, verse 21 says this, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And then Paul writes this then in the next verse, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then down in Romans 11, 11, he writes this. He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul and God want nothing more than to see Israel trust in him, yet they have constantly rejected him. Their jealousy, instead of leading them to God, instead of leading them to follow the God that Joseph served, instead it led them into grievous sin. In fact, in Genesis, as Stephen tells us, they sold Joseph into slavery. Stephen here is beginning to subtly equate these brothers and fathers, as he had called them back in verse 2. He's equating these brothers and fathers with the patriarchs who had turned their back on God's deliverer. Yet while the leaders of the people of Israel, the, these patriarchs as he calls them, they're acting in shameful sin, God is looking at Joseph favorably and even blessing him. Notice the blessings that God was bestowing on Joseph in verses 9 and 10. Just look at those blessings. First, it was God's presence with him, even when he suffered. At the end of verse 9, it says, God was with him. This is the same blessing that we have in Christ. Do we remember this? He said, I will never leave you, even when we're suffering. Another blessing is right there at the beginning of verse 10, rescued him. Again, what, what does it mean to be saved except to be rescued, to be delivered from the clutches of sin and death? And the third blessing in verse 10 is God's granting of favor or grace and wisdom. Joseph is, here in this sermon, the prototype of the one who was rejected by men but vindicated by God. As one commenter says, the one who saves is the one who has been rejected. He saved those who rejected him precisely through their having rejected him. Do you see that? Do you remember that with Joseph and his brothers? He saved them because they had rejected him and sold him into slavery. That's how he was able to save them. Joseph's, if Joseph's brothers had not sold him into slavery, he never would have been in a position to save them from starvation. 
If the Jews hadn't crucified Jesus, he would not have been able to save those who believe. But of course, this was God's plan all along, right? God rescued Joseph from his troubles so that he might rescue his people from their troubles. And we need to remember this point. God rescued and blessed Joseph physically because he had a bigger plan for Joseph's life. This is contrary to prosperity preachers, by the way. Joseph lived a prosperous life, no doubt. God blessed him materially so that he could, so that he could rescue the people of Israel. See, God will deliver, and it might be how he delivered and blessed Joseph, but more often than not, when God delivers his people, it will be how he delivered Stephen. Consider that. It will be how he blessed Stephen. Consider those things. God protected Joseph and his brothers, even though the brothers had rejected God's messenger and left him for dead. And as a result, they were shown grace and forgiveness. God preserved his people in a foreign land at the hand of a deliverer that they had rejected, and it was in a foreign land that he made them into a great nation. That's what verse 17 says. His promises were being fulfilled even as his people were rejecting his messenger. And yet verses 18 and 19 show us that once again they were in need of deliverance. And so once again, God sent them a deliverer. Pick it up in verse 20. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. I want to skip down to verse 35. 34, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them, and now... Come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the people who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received the living oracles to give them to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. We'll just stop right there. We can see God and Moses here. Stephen shifts their attention to Moses. He has spoken of Abraham. He has spoken of Joseph and the patriarchs. And now he's looking at Moses. And he very clearly is, is ramping up the charges that God's people have continued to reject God's messengers. Now this is a big section. So I, I want to kind of take this in some smaller bites. In verses 20 to 22, Stephen reminds us that Moses was uniquely prepared to deliver God's people. Moses was uniquely prepared by God to deliver God's people. First, he was born at the right time. At that time, it says. 
But when the time of the promise drew near, at the fullness of time, God sent a deliverer and he was beautiful. That literally means that he was well-bred. He was physically good for the job. Moses had the character, the strength, and the stamina to face the task ahead of him. He had inside access to Pharaoh. He grew up in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. He had access to the best education in the land. So think about this for a moment. Years later, when he stood before Pharaoh demanding, let my people go, he probably grew up with that Pharaoh. They probably played together as kids. It's even probable that they were stepbrothers. Moses was well suited for the task ahead of him. And yet in verses 23 down through verse 29, Stephen points out that Moses was rejected initially by the people. Back in verses 6 and 7, Stephen references Genesis 15 when he says that God will punish the nation that his people serve as slaves. And so what he's doing in these verses is presenting Moses' action of striking down the Egyptian as, as a just punishment for Egypt's wrongdoing. He is saying that Moses is the fulfillment of God's promise, that he is God's deliverer sent to bring salvation to Israel. He's presented as a peacemaker here. He's presented as a reconciler here. And the people did not understand. They did not understand that it is God who provides salvation. They did not understand that it is God who brings peace, that it is God who brings reconciliation, that it is God who brings justice. So often we, don't, we still don't understand that today. We look everywhere else for salvation. We look everywhere else for peace, for reconciliation. We look to ourselves for justice. We rent a mob on the internet demanding hashtag justice. But when God sends a messenger to proclaim his justice, his reconciliation, his peace, his salvation, we respond with, who made you to be a ruler and a judge over us? Actually, God did. God made himself to be a ruler and judge over us. And in Moses' case, he most likely had a real authority. Moses did here. He most likely had a real authority because he was of the household of Pharaoh. They should have listened to him. And yet they pushed him away. They thrust him aside, just like his accusers thrust Jesus aside. And so Moses fled. The redemption of the people of Israel would have to wait precisely because they rejected their deliverer who must now live as an exile, as a stranger in an even stranger land. But it's clear that this was all part of God's plan. And so 40 years later, verses 30 to 34, God sent Moses back to the people. And let me just point out that God appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai when he was 80 years old. No place is too desolate. No time is too long for the presence of God. He was with him and sent him. And while Moses had been rejected, he was accepted and even approached by God himself. Stephen is reminding us that God is faithful and that God keeps his promises, that God keeps his covenants. 
And then this last chunk of this section here, verses 35 down through 43, Stephen really develops this link between Moses and Jesus. It's saying that he had been rejected, that he was a ruler and a redeemer. even says that he performed wonders and signs. And then in verse 37, he actually says this. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. At this point, the Sanhedrin must have been looking at each other in confusion. They must have been concerned with where Stephen was going with this line of argument here, this line of thinking. Who's he talking about? What's he saying? Who's this other prophet? He better not say what I think he's going to say. Stephen doesn't stop there because in verses 38 to 43, he links the rejection of Moses with the rejection of God, which led to their idolatry, which led to God sending them once again out of the land and into exile. Despite God's long-suffering, despite God's redemption, the people continue to reject him. Stephen is saying, you think I've rejected Moses and the law? No, it's the people of Israel who have rejected God's messengers. It is you who have rejected God. He's not explicit yet, though. First, he needs to answer for one more charge, and he does so pretty easily, and again, using Scripture. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. This is God in his dwelling place. Stephen was charged. Remember the charges against him. He was charged with both speaking against the temple and again Moses against Moses or the law. And it, as if these things were permanent. As if the temple and the law were permanent. But he reminds them that this is not the case. The fact that Israel had a temple was a change from the requirements of the law which only addressed a tabernacle. That's what he's getting at there in verse um, 44. The temple that you so highly revere isn't even in Moses' writings. We're commanded to build a tabernacle, a tent of witness. But God graciously allowed Solomon, actually, to build him a house, a temple. There's nothing in the law of Moses which gives requirements for a temple, but there is for the tabernacle. And so by the time of David and Solomon... The tabernacle, or the tent of witness, as Stephen calls it here, is replaced by the temple, and God allows that, and no one argues with God about that. And to follow the logic of those who are accusing him of blasphemy, they would have to accuse David and Solomon, and even God himself, of the same thing, because he allowed them to replace the tabernacle. That's how ridiculous these charges are against him, by the way. But the, uh, the leaders of Israel have made a cult out of the temple and the law. They've stopped worshiping God and are simply following certain cultic practices. Stephen is no more against the law and the, and the temple than the scripture itself is. And, and so he quotes Isaiah 66 to prove his point here in verses 48 to 50. 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my, the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? Stephen's telling them that they're missing the entire point of all of revealed Scripture because all of these things are just a shadow of the true Abraham, of the true Joseph, of the true Moses, of the true tabernacle, the true temple. These are all just a shadow of Jesus Christ. Listen, the Old Testament is long. The Old Testament can be confusing. It can be difficult to understand at times, but don't miss the fact that it all points to Christ. We can see in this last section here of Stephen's sermon, we see these things. One commenter calls this his altar call. We'll just call it his conclusion. How's that sound? Acts 7.51, this is how he calls them to repent. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Remember his point Stephen's answering the charges against him by showing that the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leadership, by the, the people of Israel, really, it perfectly fits the pattern that they have always held to of rejecting God and his messengers, that, that pattern that has characterized their history. They've rejected Jesus just as they rejected all of the prophets before him. And right here, Stephen uses Old Testament language to condemn these Jewish leaders who were following in their ancestors' footsteps. You stiff-necked people. You stubborn fools. That's the same phrase that God used for them when they made that calf on Mount Sinai. These people still refuse to yield to the God that the temple and the law point to. He calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears. They're only concerned with outward appearances and not with obeying and, and trusting God with their hearts. They're, they're disobedient to God's covenant. Unlike Abraham, they fail, they, they fail to truly hear and accept God's word. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. They have rejected the righteous one as their fathers rejected the prophets. And as a result, it was they who have broken the law of Moses, not Stephen, not Christians. It was them. And then two things happened that actually served to prove Stephen's point. First, he sees the glorified Christ. God affirms that the things that Stephen is saying here are true by making Stephen a prophet like those of old. Look at this here. Verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. 
I said at the beginning, this entire event is framed in God's glory. The God of glory in his sovereignty chose Abraham to be the father of a great nation. The God of glory in his sovereignty chose Joseph to save his people from certain death. The God of glory in his sovereignty chose Moses to deliver his people from slavery. The God of glory with Jesus at his side, standing at his side, welcomes Stephen home to the promised land. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased the God of glory through the folly of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save those who believe. We see the, see the second thing here that proves Stephen's point. These people treated him just as they have always treated the prophets and how they treated the Son of God himself. They killed him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. In death, Stephen proves to be a shadow of Christ. He proves to be a Christ-like messenger from God pointing to his only begotten son. I see Jesus. So, what hath this to do with us? Well, I want you to notice something here. Because not only is Stephen a model for those who are facing persecution, with his eyes set fully on his Savior, knowing that, as Paul said, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only does he have his eyes set on Christ, not only is he Christ-like, even in his death, forgiving his accusers, just as Jesus said. Did you catch that when I read that earlier? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Jesus said. There's another little detail. God is up to something bigger than Stephen. God, in his patience and mercy and grace, gave the people of Israel one more chance to repent of their sin, of, of rejection by opening up the floodgates of salvation to the Gentiles. See, this, this young man here who is holding the coats of his accusers, the young man who is standing there and giving hearty approval to Stephen's execution will become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. This event, Stephen's preaching and, and subsequent execution will directly lead to the scattering of the church at the hands of Saul and, and later the, the salvation of many through the preaching and writing of that same man, now called Paul, the apostle. The same man that heard this sermon and initially rejected it and hated God and hated God's people will soon Christ will intervene and save him. He's going to knock him down and save him. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We serve a God who is mighty to save. Pray with me.
Father, there is a lot in this passage, more than we were able to cover in a one sermon. But we can see how you have been continued, how you have continued to work to save your people from their sins, to turn stubborn and sinful hearts to Christ, that you continue to send messengers to proclaim the truth, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to so many, that he has called us, that he has saved us. That for as many as received him, who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ, that you have given us the right to be called children of God. And so, Lord, as we come to the table this morning to be reminded of Christ's death, we come with hearts of thankfulness. We actually come here today, Lord, not as a funeral, but to rejoice. To rejoice that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you're a promise-keeping God. Father, we have failed your promises. We have not kept our end of the bargain, but Christ has kept it for us. And so we come to you today, Lord, with hearts of thanksgiving, rejoicing in the body and blood of Christ, covering our sins. Remind us of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died to save Sinners. We pray this in his name. Amen.